right. So um, for our podcast tonight, we have a wonderful guest. Um, we have Colin Woodhouse. I'm talking to myself and Mark, and tonight's discussion is really going to be about Colin's work regarding uh, non-religious pastoral care. But before we get into the meats of the discussion, um, Colin, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, you'll guess from my accent, and I'm originally from uh, New Zealand, I arrived from the UK about 15 years ago. Um, I've been a registered nurse for approaching 22 years now. And most of my time, I've worked either in neurosurgery and neurology or in oncology. So we've had a lot of times where we've been giving people really bad news. And then a few years ago, I got um, funding through the nursing department at the university, at the hospital I work at, to go to the university and do some postgraduate study. And I was doing that in palliative care because, unfortunately, we were providing customers to the palliative care service to with people with terminal diagnoses from things like brain tumours, motor neurone disease, catastrophic head injuries, things like that. Um, and it, while I, whilst I was doing that, I sort of got the whole idea of, non-religious spiritual support because spiritual thoughts and feelings and goals and whatever have been recognized as by the United Nations, the World Health Organization, as the sort of fourth dimension of um, healthcare and or the fourth element of healthcare. And I just started looking at stuff principally because I have no recollection at all of ever feeling remotely religious. Um, prior to becoming a nurse, I was a geologist. And that means my background in terms of, you know, where did the earth and the universe come from is very much Big Bang and evolution rather than creation, Garden of Eden, everything happened in 4,000 years. I you guess know, there's not to... much room for a creationist belief system uh, <laughs> when you're a geologist and you're seeing that long history all around you. Well, when you're walking around on things and you think, crikey, you know, this, this rock is over a billion years old. Um, so that was quite interesting. You know, it, it, it certainly set me in that department. But also because I went through school in the UK at the time, and it still is, I think, that a compulsory part of the school curriculum because of the tie between church and state in, in the UK is religious education. And it's a bit biased in the way that they do it because obviously the Church of England has a complete control over it. So their idea of church education is that even in a school that I went to that had a very significant um, Muslim population attending, we didn't talk about anything other than Christianity. Um, and the thing that was a real sort of moment changer, I suppose, was when I was in the equivalent of about year nine or 10, I think. And our teacher told us one day that she wasn't religious. We said, you know, why is that? 
And she said, well, it's because of what happened to my father-in-law. And she'd done uh, theology at university and gone on to be a, a RE teacher at school. And her father-in-law was an Anglican vicar. And she said, my father-in-law died a horrible death from bowel cancer. And she said, I couldn't understand how a God could do that to somebody that had devoted his life to the church. And that's what caused her to lose her faith. Um, I've never had one. And although I've had things that have been fairly bad in my life, I've never had something so bad that I've thought, oh, there must be a God somewhere. So I was looking at more and more, you know, things. And then I found out about the non-religious chaplaincy service that was starting to take place in the UK. And in 2018, appointed into salaried positions as non-religious chaplains. That had actually caused a lot of resistance, I suppose would be the right word, from um, the church, funnily enough who were saying, well, we don't need that because all the chaplains are trained to speak with people from all faiths or none. But this brought the question to my mind of, okay, the chaplains might be taught that, but who's going around the population and teaching all the non-religious people how to speak with religious people? And the simple answer to that is, of course. So... If people are practicing Christians and they're in hospital and they're having a, some sort of emotional or spiritual crisis, it's very easy for them to get support. So if you've got people who are religious but not Christian, it's very easy for them to get support as well because they can go to a call list. So if you need um, somebody that's uh, Muslim or Hindu or Sikh, then we can get somebody that, to come in and speak with that person about their own faith. If you've got somebody that's non-religious and they're having a spiritual crisis, which people do, because we quite often meet people that when they're asked, are you religious? They'll say, no, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. We then have this situation where they're in this rock and a hard place because they've got a choice between speaking to a religious person who has been trained very well to speak to the non-religious or to speak to nobody. And that, I mean, that brings a question to me. Um, so what is sort of the um, situation in New Zealand in terms of a, who is sort of operating our chaplaincy service and actually um, are they actually appropriate to serve the New Zealand population as it stands? Like what do you have in terms of census data per se? Um, there's a lot of census data. Um, going back to 1991, mm -hmm. very easily accessed on the um, Stats NZ work, um, website. If you look at that, over the last 30, well, 31 years now, the percentage of the population that are recorded as being Christian has substantially dropped. It's gone from over 60% to 37%. The proportion of the population that are religious and non-Christian has gone up from 4% to 8%. And the population who are not religious, 
has gone up to 48%. And one thing I can say is like next year, there'll be another census. And anybody that's listening to this that's not religious, when you're filling in the form, tick not religious. Don't tick atheist, agnostic, humanist, Jedi, or Church of the Giant Spaghetti Monster, because those people get counted as having a, a religious affiliation. So in the last census, there was about half a percent of the population got counted as being religious, despite putting themselves down as humanist or atheist or agnostic or, you know, there's 20 odd thousand people put themselves down as Jedi. So the New Zealand humanists have run a uh, campaign before putting a lot of posters up around the country, telling people exactly this, that, yes, not religious should be what you tick rather than anything else. Yeah. And they did. There was a census in the UK last year and they did Humanists UK did exactly the same. They're saying if you're not religious, tick the not religious box. That, that number is really interesting, isn't it? the number of uh, non-religious. So I've seen a, a talk given by Joseph Bulbulia about this, that the number goes up by pretty much 1% every year of non-religious yeah. in this country. And people are quite surprised just how linear that rise is, that it keeps going up every, what, four years that we have a census? There's another 4% of non-religious yeah. people. One of the interesting things, though, as well, is if you look at the um, the age groups, in the census, if you look at the 15 to 19 age group and compare it with the percentage of the population that were 15 and under in the previous census, so if you look at, say, censuses from 2018 and 2013, there'll be a substantial step upwards in the non-religious people in that, those age from under four, 14 and under to 15 and over. And internationally, that's been recognised because who's most likely to fill in the census form for somebody that's 14 or under? I guess a parent who might be religious when their child isn't. Yes. And who's most likely to be filling in the form once they're 15 or over? It's going to be the kid themselves more likely, yeah. And there is a marked decrease in the number of religious people between, you know, as they pass over that boundary of being 14 sort of thing. So and that's been that's been marked in in New Zealand. It's because uh, I've seen the data. I've seen it uh, in a paper that was published in Australia, and you can see the same sort of percentage change in census data from the UK. And then obviously, the people that are most likely to be religious are the older population. And every five years when we have a census, the older population is some of them have died. And the ones that are still in, you know, in the 65s and plus, they are people that have graduated from being 60 plus five years earlier. So there's the increasing proportion of people who are marking themselves as non-religious is spanning the whole population because as people grow and get older, you know, some of them are dying. And that adds to the whole concoction of... um, religious and non-religious people that we have in the country. Going back to your question, Bronwyn, about who is running chaplaincy in this country, there's an organisation called the ICHC, which is the Interchurch uh, Interchurch Council for Hospital Chaplaincy. And that's a work group of nine churches, funnily enough, they're all Christian. That's based in Christchurch, uh, in uh, Wellington, sorry. And they've had a contract with the Ministry of Health since 1972. 
So it's 50 years this year that they've been running. They've changed their name a few times, but effectively it's been the same organisation all the way through. So all of the chaplains, the salaried chaplains, are practising Christians. The vast majority of them are actually ordained ministers. In addition to those people, you've got the lay people volunteers, and they're all practising Christians. And these people are all trained. They're all trained and accredited and whatever, and, and they are trained to talk with people from any religious group and the non-religious. But, you know, 100% of the chaplaincy staff and personnel are practising Christians. As I just said, about 47, 48% of the population are non-religious, 37% are religious, Um Oh, sorry, practicing Christians. Well over 90% of the people that are accessing the chaplaincy service in the hospital are Christian. So it's a very biased service, in my opinion. So that that last number seems to suggest that the non-religious people who are in hospital just aren't asking for this support because they don't feel like it's going to work for them. Would that be fair? Partly that. um, Partly because as soon as you say the word chaplain, over 90% of the population are going to think Christian minister. This is another problem with word uh, naming things. Because we have this enormous problem about what do you mean by spiritual care, pastoral care, and religious care? I mean, religious is easy enough. Pastoral, most people think, well, that's part of the church. It actually means farming. We go back far enough in um, in language. And spiritual, spirit is based on the Greek word for breath and breathing. You know, it's something you can't live without. So there's all of those elements. Yeah, a lot of people are reluctant to speak to people from you know, if you're non-religious, you're far less likely to want to speak to a minister than you are if you're religious. I mean, even um, between between different demographic groups, uh, not demographics, um, you know, different sectors of the Christian faith, people can be very reluctant to, to, to speak with each other. You know, if you try and put a, a, a Roman Catholic, a Presbyterian and a Jehovah's Witness in a room, they're not going to spring into a healthy conversation. Um, unless they're just talking about what they can see is going on in the weather outside. If anybody's having a sort of emotional or spiritual crisis, even if they are religious, they don't necessarily want to speak to their own somebody from their own faith or their own um, church. Because one of the things that cropped up a lot in what I've done so far and what I've read and what I've spoken to other people about is this idea of judgment. And if you aren't religious and you're being spoken to by or you're speaking with somebody who is, they may be doing a fantastic job. But if you're sitting there thinking that if you the person was homosexual and they're thinking, I'm talking to somebody about a church from a church, I'm talking about my partner, where I'm in a same-sex relationship, this person is from a church, they're going to hate me. And they may That's not. A- Really interesting point, actually. I mean, having been Christian myself for maybe 12 years or so, I I think there's a tendency when you are religious to 
try and put the best version of you forward. You want your ministers to think the best of you. You you make this picture of yourself being, you know, a, a proper good Christian, and you're very unlikely to be fully honest with them about what's actually going on in your life and what you really feel. And I could imagine people looking for pastoral care who want to have an honest conversation, not wanting to have that with someone from their own church. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not just about having a listener, it's having the right listener. I mean, that, that's a concept that's quite pervasive in other aspects of healthcare too, in particular, our interpretation services. Um, you know, we have some issues actually, you know, as much as you say, could have a Samoan person who needs a Samoan language interpreter. Sometimes they may, the person, the patient may reject that interpreter because the particular interpreter has such a connection to the community that they, you know, there's a, there, you know, there's a level of trust, but there's also a level of distrust, not wanting their personal inner private information being shared by somebody who, you know, is not the right listener. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, um, Lindsay Van Dyke, the um, non-religious chaplaincy service manager in uh, Sheffield now. She, in the UK, not in a place where there's a world-famous pie shop in Canterbury, um, she sent me some of the case studies that she's done from her interactions with patients over the last couple of years. And one of those was somebody who, it was a female, she was brought up in a Catholic family. She had premarital sex with a Presbyterian and ended up getting married to the person and was completely rejected by her family. And she felt like she'd been excommunicated by the Catholic Church. But she still believed in God and she still had things that she wanted to speak about, but she didn't feel that she could speak to the Catholic chaplain at the hospital she was reluctant to speak to anybody else that was uh, she knew to be religious. So she sat down and spoke with Lindsay. And Lindsay's found it a couple of times that having a, a non-religious third party to talk to can make an enormous difference for people that are religious as well. So that's, that's a, this is a question then. How progressive is New Zealand in this field? I mean, are there any DHBs that have access or provide a humanist or non-religious um, pastor and or chaplain? Um, no. No. Would be the, the None. Answer. None. Um, <laughs> well, yes and no. Um, Palmerston North have somebody there who used to be a chaplain, used to be an ordained person but has um, gone down a different pathway. So she's not employed by ICHC anymore. She's employed by the DHB there. So she does that. Some of the hospices, which are not part of the health service as such, they have non-religious pastoral support people. What we don't have here is trained non-religious pastoral support workers or trained and accredited non-religious pastoral support workers that I'm aware of. There may well be somebody in the country that's done it or is looking to do it. But in the UK, there's an organisation called the Non-Religious Pastoral Support Network. And you can find them on the internet really easily by just typing NRPSN, NRPSN, Non-Religious Pastoral Support Network. And that was set up by the Humanist Association there. And they recruit, train, 
and accredit non-religious people to be pastoral, you know, non-religious pastoral support workers. Things have changed a bit because of COVID and who is allowed into hospitals and things at any time. But just prior to the plague hitting the world, about 40% of UK hospitals and 20% of prisons were offering patients and inmates um, access to non-religious pastoral support. And the service was improving. Another thing to look at, University of Leicester Hospitals, if you look on their website and have a look on and search for chaplaincy, that hospital trust have been groundbreaking in many respects because they were the first place to appoint a salaried Muslim chaplain because Leicester has a significant Muslim population. And again, and this is about 20 years ago that they did this, and at the time the church was very much against it, but the person in charge of the service in Leicester, who is a, I know he's an Anglican, he's a, a Christian minister, I'm not sure what church um, he's from, but he said, no, we need to do this, because otherwise we're not offering people the right service, we're not offering an equitable service sort of thing. So he... Um, recruited this person, and you'll never guess what happened. The number of Rises. people accessing the service increased because Muslims were more happy talking to an, to an imam. Mm -hmm. And then Leicester was the first place to appoint a non-religious pastoral support person. And that was more of a battle because for the first two years being employed 0.5 FTE, the person there, who's since retired but has been replaced, her salary was paid for by the hospital volunteers and the funds that they raised. And then the trust finally decided that, yes, actually, we do need to pay this person because, again, the service had increased. The number of people accessing the service had increased. So Leicester now pays for Christian, Muslim, Sikh, Hindu and non-religious chaplains. And they have access to Jewish and Baha'i and Buddhist and any other denomination you can think of. So they really have set the gold standard. And I think what we need to do here in New Zealand is get on board with something similar or if not identical to what non-religious pastoral support network have done and are continuing to do. And Lindsay Van Dyke, who I spoke about earlier on, she is the chairperson of the Non-Religious Pastoral Support Network as well. So then, and then also to look at what Leicester have done, because they haven't sort of taken this, well, if we bring people in from other faiths, they're going to completely undermine the chaplaincy. They want to get rid of the chaplaincy. No, we don't. I don't want to get rid of the chaplaincy. What I want to do is for the chaplaincies to become equitable and reflect the needs of the population. And it was interesting when that massive announcement was made in April last year about how the whole health system was going to change. You know, there weren't going to be 20 district health boards anymore. Um, it was going to be done on a completely different basis. The word equity was used throughout the announcements about that, you know, equitable health service, particularly for people from lower socioeconomic groups. I wrote to the Minister of Health and a couple of the um, deputy directors, you know, sort of um, Ashley Bloomfield's 
lynch people, one of whom was the Maori health person. The last census showed 53.5% of Maoris has been non-religious. And I wrote to him and said, you need to change the act here, basically. I did it in a much more formal manner, obviously, and said, this isn't equitable. And his reply to me was, well, we think it's fine. I think you should speak with the ICHC. And I wasn't very impressed with that. So, so how have the ICHC been? Uh, have they? Have you talked to them at all? Have they well, been it, welcoming of the idea of expanding this service? It's a very mixed thing, really. Sorry, Bronwyn, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to interject with the same thing. It was sort of what has the response been when you've tried to promote and try to um, advocate for a, you know, a more equitable chaplaincy? Well, it was funny. I presented at work one time. My presentation was the uh, one about the need for non-religious pastoral support in hospitals. There were a lot of people there. And I jokingly said beforehand, you know, if any of the chaplaincy turn up, I'll get lynched. And quite a few of the chaplaincy staff did, and not just from our hospital, but from other people within the DHB that are based in Christchurch. So somebody from Hillmorton and Bur uh, Burwood and uh, Princess Margaret. And whatever. I got to the end of it and said, would anybody like to ask any questions? And one of the chaplains stood up and basically started shouting at me. <laughs> and um, oh. <laughs> his, his colleagues, one of it, well, his service manager, came up to me afterwards and said, I am so sorry about that. And I said, look, you don't have to apologize for what somebody else has done. Uh, afterwards, I was thinking, well, he's just done a fantastic job of displaying to everybody in the room why we need to have non-religious pastoral support workers. Because um, he'd been saying, you know, I'd only, you know, I'd only refer to one book, which I hadn't done, but and I resisted the temptation to say, well, most of the things you talk about, you only ever refer to one book, but <laughs> nobody's criticised you for that. And I hadn't only referred to one book. And he said, and, you know, and we're all trained to talk to people of all faiths or not. And that goes back to the question of, yes, but who's teaching the other people to talk to you and cope with talking to you? Yeah, I, th I think there's like a possibly a deliberate ignorance there of just assuming that because you've been trained that that means that people will want it. And yeah, as you've said, yeah. I, I think the the real way of figuring out if that works or not is just looking at the numbers. And if the numbers don't show it, they can they can shout as much as they like that, you know, they're able to cope with people of all faiths and none. But they really aren't, no matter how well they've no, been trained. No. I mean, coming from a healthcare background myself as a midwife, I mean, the word that we would use in my profession would be cultural safety. Um, and I guess it sort of, you know, may cause a few skeptics in the audience to cringe slightly. But in, in a way, you know, if you're non-religious, skeptical, you, you know, there is a particular sort of culture to us. And, you know, there are a measure of shared values that we have. And I think people really underestimate the um, impact of, say, of the trauma that people feel. Again, it's a story that you told about the woman who had married the Presbyterian. Yeah. You know, there is a deep level of rejection that people are dealing with on a long-term basis. And, you know, yes, you can have your pastors trained, but, you know, is it culturally safe to have someone religious speak to someone non-religious if that's not what they want? Yeah. And I think, you know, even looking at things, going back to the, the topic of homosexuality, like I was talking about before, one of the papers I read where somebody said she didn't want to talk to anybody religious. And it wasn't because she was homosexual. 
It was because her son was. So it was this sort of like third party effect of of what churches have said about people because they're homosexual. You know, it's an abomination and all that sort of thing. But apparently it's it's not quite as bad as, as eating prawns, apparently, because that gets mentioned more in Leviticus than, than homosexuality. Um, so, so we've heard a bit about, you know, how the chaplain, chaplaincy organization has responded, or at least members, individual members have responded. A little, bit about how, a little bit about how the government has responded. So how have other nurses and your nursing organizations respond? Um, I'll just go back and say about the ICHC. I mean, oh, yeah. the majority of the chaplains that I've, I've worked with and I've met at the CDHB, they've been very supportive. They recognize that there does need to be a change because of what happened almost three years ago here in Christchurch with the mosque shootings. When that had happened, obviously we had all the chaplains here, but they were very sensible and they basically put their hands up and said, we aren't the right people to be doing this job. And there were a lot of imams came in from all over the New, all over New Zealand to help support the survivors that were in hospital, their families, the families of the people that have been killed, and particularly, I think the families or the survivors who'd had another family member killed. I mean, I wouldn't have the first idea how to support that person spiritually, and irrespective of what training I had, I think I'd say I can't do that. So the bulk of the chaplains that I've spoken to have said, yes, we need to change. The problem is that the Ministry of Health aren't too bothered about changing it because that would might involve money. The ICHC is in a fairly stable position. And although they might think, yeah, changing things would be good, they haven't done anything. My colleagues that I've spoken to, and it's not just been nursing colleagues, it's been all people through the you know, nurses, doctors, allied health staff, everybody, really, and irrespective of their own faiths, because many of them are very religious people, and certainly more religious than I am, which, you know, I'm pretty much at the opposite end of the spectrum from them anyway, but they are very supportive because they want to be able to speak to the right person for them, and they want everybody else to have the opportunity to speak to the right person for them too. Realistically, it's not something that can't be done it's something that we've got to try and kick into motion. I'm fortunate in that because of some links I've made, people I've met, I've been asked to take part in a work group that are currently putting forward or working together to put forward a, a submission to the Human Rights Commission to show what needs to be done. Because... In various things that have been, you know, our own human rights law, international human rights rights law that um, New Zealand has accredited, we're obliged to not be discriminatory on the grounds of religion or non-religion, and they're equal. You know, you can't say, well, you know, you're Christian, so you can have this. You're not Christian, so you can have that. And you're not religious at all, so you can't have anything at all. So... That work is in process, and at some stage this year, we'll make a submission to the Human Rights Committee, Commission. And then from there, hopefully, things will start to happen. Um, because in the process, if, if we're successful, we'll get an awful lot more money to be able to start changing things. And when I say changing things, I don't mean simply 
just introducing trained non-religious people, we have to look at the fact that the fastest growing religious group in New Zealand is Hinduism. But, you know, how many salaried Hindu priests are employed? None, as far as I'm aware. So there's bias number one. You know, the most popular family surname in New Zealand last year for new birth registrations was Singh, which means there's an awful lot of Sikhs in the country. We've got to start providing the proper service. And, you know, in a city that like Auckland, where you've got a million plus people, you know, you've got the same population in Auckland as we've got in the, pretty much in the whole of the South Island, but you only employ Christian ministers as chaplains that just shouts you know discrimination from the rooftop sort of thing so you know why isn't there at least one muslim at least one hindu going between all the different hospitals in auckland and obviously at least one um, non-religious chaplain as well there's a long way to go it's not impossible it's happened in other countries but the dutch have got the best history of this altogether because they started providing non-religious pastoral support work in their army and their hospitals and whatever since about 1952 you know because so many dutch people lost their faith during the war when they were occupied. Wow. yeah and approaching 70 percent of the dutch population are not religious so just as we kind of wrap up our chat for tonight, I mean, what advice or what requests do you have of our listeners in terms of what they can do on a grassroots level to help make these changes and to bring about a change in their hospital chaplaincy service? I think one of the things that would be really easy for people to do is if they're unfortunately admitted to hospital and ask, do you want to see somebody from chaplaincy? And they say, I'd love to see somebody that's a non-religious chaplain, please. Not just somebody that's trained to speak to the non-religious, but I want to speak to somebody that is non-religious. Mm. In the same way that if there were a Jehovah's Witness and said, I want to be a Jehovah's I want to see a Jehovah's Witness, that would happen. But at the moment, we're not doing that enough. And part of that is because those nurses are dreadful at asking people what they want to do spiritually, pretty much until they're on the palliative care pathway and have maybe only got a few days left to live. And then they'll say, oh, there's a tick box here about your spiritual and religious beliefs. What would you like to do? You know, um, it's leaving it a bit late there. But we've got, you know, we need to change enormously. One other way of doing it is rather than trying to do it top down is to do it bottom up. We know that there's more non-religious people in the country. We need them to be asking to see non-religious people, and particularly in horrendous situations like if somebody's just been diagnosed with a terminal illness like a brain tumor or they've got motor neuron disease or they've been confirmed to have huntington's career or something like that but particularly bronwyn thinking about what you do for a living over 50 percent of all the people between 19 and 40 years of age are non-religious Big part of the birthing population, of course. That's going to be a huge proportion of the birthing population. And pretty much anybody and everybody that has a miscarriage, the people that are really unfortunate to have a planned pregnancy that they want more than anything on the world, 
And at 20 weeks or 18 weeks, they have a scan that shows that it's a non-viable pregnancy. And that happened to a colleague of mine. And another colleague, his wife um, had a stillbirth at 27 weeks. So if they're non-religious, what are we going to offer those people? But I think when you talked, oh, sorry, I was just about to interject. Um, when you spoke to the humanists, you had mentioned, I think if it was not Lizzie Van Dyke, then someone in a similar position, um, some of the examples that she brought forth oh, were talking to um, families who were in such a position. Yeah, that was Jane Flint. She was the lady that was a, the first appointed salaried person in, in Leicester. She's now retired. But yeah, she said one of the quotes from her was somebody saying that, you know, thank you for coming and seeing our little being. We couldn't have let her go without somebody seeing her and saying something, but we did not want anybody religious there. Yeah, Jane, Jane was remarkable. Still is, actually. She's just not, she's not working anymore as a, as a chaplain. And there, there are a couple of books that... It, there's one by a chap called David Savage, which isn't a particularly good surname for anybody that's a doctor. That's called Non-Religious Pastoral Care, A Practical Guide by David Savage. That was published about three, three years ago. That covers hospitals, prisons, university, army in the UK. There's also a little book that's been published in the last 12 months in the UK. And this, uh, the David Savage one is an academic book, so it costs about $55. The other one is called Being There, Responses in Humanist Pastoral Care by a lady called Joanna Mutlow. She's also a salaried chaplain now in the UK. And she wrote that while she was on um, lockdown. And that's about the experiences of a load of people that have been trained by the Non-Religious Pastoral Support Network. And that book costs about five quid from the Humanist Association. I mean, being there is, is excellent. I bought three copies. Uh, I've still got one here. I, I've lent one to my chaplain colleague at work she's read it and thinks it's great and she's lent it to one of the other chaplains we'll see what their response is like and the other one i sent down to um otago to the chap that's coordinating the work group darling fabulous um mark any final thoughts before we uh sign off no i try not to think too much <laughs> <laughs> Well, if that's it, um, again, thank you so much, Colin. It was fantastic to hear you talk again and to hear a little bit more about where your work has been taking you since we saw you talk in about, what was it, 2019 when you came to was. Wellington? Yeah. yeah. It was a while ago. All yeah. right. And then, you know, all the best. And hopefully uh, we start seeing some changes sooner rather than later. I rather hope so. <laughs> Thanks very much. I'm, I'm guessing not. I'm guessing this is going to be a slow process, but you've just got to keep at it, right? Absolutely. Nothing happens quickly in the health service, apart from pandemic. <laughs> too true, too true.